0: Guys, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show and you want to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or follow the link at the Contribute tab on wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up. For just a buck a month, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes, and you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. The latest Patreon episode was posted last week, and it's an extension of the last episode on the word, Thou. Here's a sample of what the contributors are listening to. As a reaction against everybody calling everybody you the Quakers staunchly called everybody Thou. The religious sect clung to the pronoun Thou as a way of enforcing a more humble, egalitarian, and down-to-earth way of addressing one another. In their own words, they valued plain language. They saw the universality of You, which, remember, was originally a formal pronoun, as pompous and immodest. Ironically, the universal you that emerged due to England's new social mobility was, in a way, also egalitarian, but it approached its egalitarianism from a different point of view. So, if that sounds interesting to you, you know what to do. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can do a one-time donation at paypal.me/wordsforgranted. Thanks to Paul, Frank, and Adam for their recent contributions. Okay, enough of me trying to be a salesman. Let's get on to today's show. When I was a kid and my mother brought me to church, my notion of church was straightforward. It was the physical building where we went to do God stuff. It was a place, a point on a map, an address that we could have punched into a GPS if those existed back then. On dictionary.com, the first entry for church is a public place of Christian worship. And indeed, that's exactly what I thought it was when I was a kid, and it's still what I think it is now. Depending on its context, church can have other meanings too. We can use it as an abstract umbrella term for the institutions, ideologies, and history of Christianity at large. We can use it as a euphemism for organized religion, as in the phrase separation of church and state. We can even collectively refer to the people of a congregation as the church. I'm sure there are other examples out there, too, but I think you get the idea. While the precise sense of the word church may vary depending on its context, generally, all of these senses share a root in the literal sense of the church being a building, as a place where Christians can come together and worship. I may be stating the obvious here, but there's no harm in being extra clear. The primary sense of church, in English, is a building. And it always has been. The word church has primarily denoted a building of worship since it entered the English language way back during Old English. The word sounded differently and was spelled differently back then, but we'll talk more about that later on. The most common theory claims that church ultimately comes from the Greek word kurios, which meant master or head of the household. Interestingly, this word has survived into modern Greek as the term for mister. In a Christian context, however, kurios came to mean the Lord, and the phrase doma meant the Lord's house. If this is true, then the phrase doma, later shortened to just kuriakon, is the earliest semantic predecessor to the English sense of church as a place of worship. There is an alternative hypothesis, but to me it feels a little bit like an etymological conspiracy theory, so I don't want to go down that road just yet. The Curiacon hypothesis is the one most widely accepted by scholars, so it's the one I'm going to focus on in our main narrative today. So, Assuming that church does indeed derive from kuriakon, common epithets like the Lord's house and house of the Lord do a good job of preserving its etymological meaning. For most Christians, going to church is one of the most foundational aspects of their religion, so you would expect to find that word a lot in the Bible, particularly the New Testament. And you do find it a whole lot in the New Testament. But there's a twist. When you read the word church in English translations of the New Testament, whether in the King James Version from 1611 or the New Revised Standard Version from 1989, it's never, not even once, a translation of the word kuriakon or doma." The word kuriakon does appear in the original Koine Greek text of the New Testament, but only twice, and it's used to mean of or pertaining to the Lord, as in the Lord's supper or the Lord's day. Remember, kuriakon doma literally meant the Lord's house. However, the word church, the Etymological descendant of Kuriakon appears in English translations of the New Testament about 115 times. If that strikes you as a little strange, consider this Kuriakon Doma, the phrase that gives us the modern notion of church as a building, doesn't even appear in the written record until the 3rd century AD, while the New Testament had already been written and canonized by the 2nd century AD. If you think about it critically, it makes sense that the word for church doesn't appear in the original text of the New Testament, especially in the Gospels which tell the life of Jesus. While Jesus was indeed the founder of Christianity, during his lifetime, he and his followers were just quirky Jews that, from an outsider's perspective, would have hardly been distinguishable from other Jews. The church, as we know it, was a byproduct of Christianity over time. In the world described in the New Testament, the Christian church as a formal institution didn't exist yet. So, if kuriakon never appears in the Bible, meaning a place of worship, yet the word church appears in translations of the Bible so many times, what is the original Greek word from which church is being translated? That word is ecclesia. It's a word that predates Christianity by at least five centuries, and it certainly has nothing to do with a building, worship, or any combination of these two. In its most general sense, an ecclesia was an assembly or gathering. It comes from the verb ekkaleo, meaning to call forth or summon. In the 5th century BCE, when Athens became Greece's first democracy, it named its main legislative assembly the Ecclesia. And this political sense of the word is the one most familiar to students of classical history today. The Ecclesia was a select civil body, and it met regularly to vote on important matters ranging from foreign affairs to the election of local officials. The idea behind the etymology is that their government literally summoned them or called them forth to vote on political issues. The place where the Athenian ecclesia met was called the Ecclesiasterion. Although ecclesiasterion is derived from ecclesia, they were nonetheless distinct words with distinct meanings. This is significant because it goes to show that the later Christian sense of ecclesia, meaning church, has no etymological or historical basis in the culture that produced the word itself. Now, that's not to say that the later Christian sense of the word is wrong. As I say in the tagline of this show, words change meaning over time. It's a natural byproduct Of all languages, and the only correct sense of a word is the sense in which it was intended by a speaker or author in its historical context. With that said, when ecclesia in the New Testament is translated as church, it is wrong precisely because of the context in which it's being used. Ecclesia had not yet acquired a sense of church as we know it today when the New Testament was written. As I already mentioned, the church as a formalized institution had not yet been established. So, if that's the case, what did ecclesia mean at the point in history at which the New Testament was written? Well, minus its association with the democracy of classical Athens, it still meant an assembly or gathering. When Jesus, or anyone else in the Bible, uses the word to collectively refer to believers in God, a better translation than church might be God's assembly, or God's gathering, or even God's people. With this in mind, let's take a look at a specific example of how this might complicate the task of biblical interpretation. In Matthew 16.18, Jesus says, quote, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Quote. This metaphor, with its reference to a rock and its use of the verb to build, gives the impression that Jesus is literally talking about something physical, building an actual church. In conjunction with the way we understand the word church today, the meaning of the passage seems like a no-brainer. Jesus wants to build a house of worship. However, I think the best way to interpret this passage is as a metaphor— Though this very passage would be later viewed by Christians as a divine foreshadowing of Peter's foundation of the Roman papacy, the Bible is nothing if not a chock full of metaphors. So, given our analysis of ecclesia thus far, on a strictly linguistic basis, there's absolutely no reason to believe that Jesus was talking about literally building the church as either an institution or or a physical place of worship. Jesus could just as easily have been saying, Hey Peter, go out there and get together some people, an assembly, to believe in my message. But I guess we'll never know for sure. We can get a glimpse of the neutral sense of the word ekklesia, meaning assembly, in several lines from Acts 19. Here are some excerpts from the New American Standard Bible. Acts 19.32, so then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Acts 19.39, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. And Acts 19.41, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Of course, it's impossible to get a sense of what's going on when you look at sporadic excerpts like this, but basically, Paul is preaching the Word of God to an ecclesia of heathen Ephesians, and ecclesia is uniformly translated as assembly. Acts 19 is just one of three chapters in the entire New Testament that doesn't translate ecclesia as church. Now, you might be wondering about the relationship between the words church and ecclesia in the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament wasn't originally written in Greek, and ecclesia is, of course, a Greek word. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the Old Testament was translated into Greek at a time contemporaneous with the emergence of Christianity. This translation was called the Septuagint. It was widely read and revered by Greek speaking Hellenized Jews and is today considered to be an authoritative source. The Hebrew word kahal meant assembly, congregation, or gathering. Unsurprisingly, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, Greek scribes often translated kahal as ekklesia. Like ekklesia, Kahal is used to describe the collective community of God's people, which in the Old Testament was the Israelites. Also, like ecclesia, kahal can be used in a generalized secular sense referring to any group of people. Yet, when ecclesia appears in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, it never corresponds to the word church in English translations. Why is there a disparity between English interpretations of the same word in the Old and New Testaments? This, of course, is because church has specifically Christian connotations, and the New Testament is a Christian text, not a Jewish text. In the Old Testament, ecclesia generally corresponds to English words or phrases like multitudes or multitudes of people, gathering, assembly, Or congregation. Beneath this, there's a subtle and profound point that's been simmering there for the last 2,000 years. The Greek scribes translating and compiling the Septuagint understood the Hebrew word kahal and the Greek word ekklesia to mean the same thing. In other words, they didn't sharply distinguish between the Old Testament Israelites and the New Testament Christians. The old and the new were simply different points on a single spectrum representing a single community of believers in a single god. I don't know if this further reinforces the point, but check this out. The Greek word synagogue, which today refers to a place of worship for Jews, was sometimes used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament as a word referring to Gentiles, a.k.a. non-Jews. Talk about words changing meaning over time. For the final portion of this episode, I'd like to focus on early English translations of the Bible to see how the trend of translating ecclesia as church became codified. But first, let's take a quick look at the orthographical and phonological evolution of church. Orthography refers to how words are written, and phonology refers to how words are pronounced. Most Christian-themed words entered the English language via Latin. Latin Latin-speaking Christian missionaries arrived on the British Isle in the 6th century CE, set up monasteries which spoke and studied Latin, and from there, Christian loanwords began trickling down into the common English vernacular of the people. So you would expect church to have entered English via Latin, via Greek. However, Coriocon the word from which church derives, never made it from Greek into Latin. The Romance languages and other Latin-influenced languages have words for church that derive from ecclesia, the Latin borrowing of ecclesia. So, if Coriocon never made it into Latin, how the heck did it make its way into English? Historically, Greek speakers and Old English speakers had very little to no contact because they lived on opposite ends of Europe. Well, if the Koreacon etymology is correct, then the word would have entered into the Germanic lexicon before the continental Anglo-Saxons migrated to the British Isle and Old English emerged as a distinct language. The English word church has cognates in all of the other Germanic languages, including German, Dutch, Norse, and so on. The current theory supposes that the Goths, who were the easternmost Germanic people, probably absorbed the word directly from the Greek speakers as an unattested loanword, and from there the word spread from east to west. This would have happened before the Germans were Christianized, so church was probably used in a pre-Christian way to describe places of German pagan worship too. It's likely that, through these Germanic speakers, this loanword was transmitted to the Slavonic language family as well. If you recall, at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned an alternative etymological hypothesis to the conventional one that I've been discussing. That hypothesis also concerns pagan worship and it claims that church is actually cognate with words like circle, circus and the Greek goddess Circe. In my next Patreon episode, which should be completed in the next few weeks, I'm going to unpack this wacky hypothesis. If you want access to it, patreon.com/wordsforgranted is your ticket. As you probably already know. Anyway, The Old English word for church was kirke or karike. The first vowel in these words was spelled either with an I or a Y. In Old English, the vowel Y had an "u" sound, but by Middle English, that sound had mostly shifted to a short I sound. Words such as sister, listen, and kiss all once had a Y vowel sound that was pronounced in this old-fashioned way. However, in a few words, such as bury, much, and church, that original u sound was preserved and flattened out a little to resemble the modern short u sound. The phonetic spelling we use today with the modern short u vowel was standardized during the 16th century. As for the shift from the hard c to the ch sound written with a ch, I'm going to refer you to my entire episode on the evolution of the letter C. It's packed with every detail you could imagine about C and C-related sounds, and since it's a fairly technical and complicated phenomenon, I don't want to get into it here. With that out of the way, one question remains. How did the trend for translating ecclesia as church get off the ground in the first place? For the answer to this... Let's turn to the two earliest translations of the Bible into English. The very first Bible translated into English was done by John Wycliffe in 1382. Wycliffe couldn't read Greek, so he translated the text from Latin. Like I mentioned earlier, Latin borrowed ecclesia as a loan word from Greek. Latin speakers pronounced it something like ecclesia, As far as I can tell, the primary sense of the Latin word ecclesia, unlike the Greek ecclesia, had shifted away from assembly, and instead it primarily meant church as we know it today. So, as far as Wycliffe knew, he was being an accurate translator. The next English translation of the Bible was the Tyndale Bible from the 1530s. It was translated by William Tyndale, a British scholar fluent in both Greek and Hebrew. Tyndale's translation is considered to be the first authentic English translation of the original biblical texts. Uh, Side note here, it's a little misleading to refer to Tyndale's work as the Bible proper. His work was not a complete Bible, as he was executed by the Roman Catholic Church for heresy before he could complete the entire Old Testament. Regardless, Tyndale's work was completed and edited by another translator shortly after his death, and the Tyndale Bible, as it came to be known, would go on to have a very profound impact on all future English translations of the Bible. An estimate of as much as 83% of the King James Version of the Bible is lifted straight from Tyndale's Bible. Since the King James Version translates ecclesia as church. It's statistically probable that this is how Tyndale translated it as well. But that's not the case. William Tyndale deliberately translated the word ecclesia as congregation. Certainly, a congregation is more akin to a gathering or an assembly than a church, which, of course, refers to a place of worship and the formalized institution of how to worship. With this translation, Tyndale was reacting to the political and social corruption he saw in the Catholic Church during his lifetime, and in a way, he was an ideological forerunner of the Protestant Reformation. By eliminating the word church from the Bible, he was also eliminating all of the historical and institutional baggage that went along with it. His attempt was to refocus the meaning of ecclesia on people rather than a place, on a spiritual community rather than a politically raw institution. Indeed, one of his accusations of heresy was this altered translation of ecclesia, the church viewed it as an attack on their tradition, and they were absolutely right. When King James commissioned an English translation of the Bible that would later bear his name, he set forth 14 rules of translation. Rather ironically, rule number three states quote, The old ecclesiastical words are to be kept, as the word church, not to be translated congregation, etc. End quote. The irony here, of course, is that congregation is a much better translation of the older sense of the word. But anyway, why in the world did King James care so much about the preservation of the word church versus congregation that he had to explicitly state it in his rules? Isn't it strange that, in spite of the king's reverence toward Tyndale's translation, I mean he recycled like 80% of it, that in spite of this reverence, he had to add in this one little detail about the word church? Why? I suspect the answer is twofold. First, Puritans hated the word church, and most of England hated the Puritans. The translators would have been unwise to emulate the lingo of the contemporary religious outcasts in what would go on to be arguably the most influential English version of the Bible of all time. Secondly, the King James Bible was specifically commissioned by the Church of England. It wasn't the Roman Catholic Church, but it was a church nonetheless the translators would also have been unwise to downplay the new face of Christianity in England. (sighs) At the end of this very lengthy episode, I still feel like I've barely scratched the surface. There's so much deep church history that, for the sake of concision, I've had to condense things down into one sentence here or one sentence there, so I hope you've managed to take away a coherent narrative from all of this. If you have any more questions, please feel free to email me at wordsforgranted@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Also, a quick announcement. It's probably going to be three and a half weeks before I get the next episode out to you guys. I'm going to be traveling over that time period, and I won't have the resources to record. But sit tight. I promise I'll be back, hopefully with some of my best episodes yet. In the meantime why don't you drop by Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice and leave a positive review? All right. Thanks, guys. I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted.